The uh, scripture today for today is Mark 6, and I think it's, what, 1 through 13. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, he asked. What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his town, among his relatives, and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village, calling the twelve to him. He began to send them out two by two and gave gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear your sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many people with oil and uh, sick people with oil and healed them. Uh, since we're on the subject of Mark and sandwiches, which I didn't know that, you know, obviously you all are with me. We're on the subject of Mark and sandwiches uh, that talk to us about the identity of, and character of Jesus. Let's look at, just like we did with the Gerasene demoniac a, a little while back and just like we did with the pairing between the parables and the demoniac, and then the pairing between uh, the resurrection of Lazarus's daughter and the bleeding woman. Those are two really nice little sandwiches. Let's look at this sandwich that pairs Jesus's rejection in his hometown with uh, the sending out of the disciples. And like any good sandwich, let's look at what it can tell us about the character of Jesus. I don't know how we should think about who Jesus is. And I think ultimately the punchline is that uh, this sandwich teaches us that Jesus's uh, claim on us is about a calling that is not reducible to a practice or a habit or a place. That the character of the calling itself is the thing that Jesus wants us to focus on. And this is a elaborate, but in my opinion, kind of beautiful way of, of getting to that point. And I don't know, I can usually tell... I've been the, this series on the um, messianic secret. It, I, I've been doing a lot more research than I often do. Like uh, most of the time, I'll get a sense down of what I want to do for a book, and executing any given sermon is pretty easy. It's a couple hours worth of work on a Friday, maybe. And these I find myself looking at earlier and earlier and reading more and more about. And one of the best measures for uh, at least my level of engagement with what's going on in the sermon is to figure out how many pages of paragraphs I delete when I get to the. Uh, final message for Sunday, and I think I deleted like six pages of things this time. So this is a, my best shot at a, at, a, at, a, at a compact vision of this. I think that this chapter serves as one of the big hinges in the story of the kingdom in Mark's gospel. So, and the basic shtick is Jesus is rejected by the folks who are closest to him in the place that maybe for most of us would be most dear to us. And he immediately responds by commissioning and calling the disciples to go out and do the work of the kingdom. I want you to think about that in the context of the basic dynamic that we've been looking at over the last two weeks between fear, phobos, and belief. And remember what that's about? The idea of the Greek idea of phobos or fear was what? It's about flight. 
It's about the idea that you experience something that really kind of, I don't know, makes you uh, so anxious about something or so nervous about something that you want to flee it or engage it. And one of the things that Jesus has been doing over and over in the last couple chapters of Mark is he's been looking at people who are having a phobos fear flight response and saying what to them? No fear, only belief. Only belief. Put your faith in, in me or in the mission of the kingdom. And so one of the things that the Gospel of Mark is doing here is it's trying to get us to think about that relationship between fear, the desire to flee, and belief, or in the choice to engage. And so, you know, like, uh, Jesus is rejected in a place, and by the people who would matter most to most of us, that would cause any of us to want to flee from mission, wouldn't it? it you know, it'd be terrible to be alienated from your family and from your community, and uh, God forbid, even from your church. <laughs> But Jesus answers that choice in this case, the choice to flee or to engage decisively by sending the disciples out. This is also a great example of why, like Trey said last week, the gospel of Mark is tough to interpret. Because I don't know, like, first of all, everyone always talked about it like it was this news report that didn't have that much kind of real reflection on, I don't know, what the people were thinking or what the various characters in the plot were doing. Although, as I pointed out last week, the bleeding woman is one of the only people in Mark for whom Mark says this is what's going on in her internal dialogue. But generally, like, you have to look at the Gospel of Mark and you have to think about these, I don't know, like how all the story fits together. And I got to thinking about it and it's like trying to explain to someone uh, the way we typically think about the Gospel. The way It's like trying to explain to someone why Romeo and Juliet is a truly great tragedy by only looking at the conversation between, I don't know, Benvolio and Romeo on the streets of Verona. You kind of have to read the whole thing to figure out how all the elements fit together. You kind of have to look at the character of the story to see why it's really great. And so the reason why we're reading this sandwich today is to reduce down to that kind of core thing that Jesus is rejected in the place that should matter most to most of us, and he responds to it by sending his disciples out. In other words, Mark kind of wants us to read the whole story here. And once you figure out, and I'll be honest, like, it's kind of hard to figure out on the basis of this evidence why Jesus is rejected in his hometown. It doesn't really say very much. We're going to read into why it is that he's rejected, but, you know, the Gospel of Mark doesn't really foreground the reasons why he's rejected. It kind of presumes that we'd either, I don't know, figure it out from basic context clues, or maybe it's our knowledge of the culture that would help us understand, but it does make it uh, pretty crucial that we think about I don't know how Jesus is responding to that rejection in uh, sending out the disciples and in ultimately doubling down on the mission of the kingdom. So he'd been, Jesus, that is, had been bouncing around on the road all over Israel and doing all kinds of amazing things. So he's just healed the garrison demoniac. He's healed the bleeding woman. He's resurrected Lazarus's daughter. And I don't know, what do you say besides things change when he goes to the old home church? So Jesus left there and went to his hometown in 6 1, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Now, uh, people are amazed. That's a good thing, no? Like, Trey, I don't know. For I'd certainly be excited to hear that someone was amazed by something that was sad when you're preaching, but the word for amazed here is not like happy amazed. The word for amazed here, the Greek word at least, is ekpleso. And it means something uh, more negative than amazed. So it's not just like, oh, wow, what a, well, Jesus really drove it home today, didn't he? It comes from a word that means something like to be struck out of your senses. It, or like to, it was like to have received a blow and to be, as a result of it, to be out of your mind. And there's always a risk of overreading the relevance of a term. But when I looked at the Greek here, 
I couldn't help but think about our discussion last week about fleeing instead of encountering. Like the, the, the ekplesso of the crowd in the synagogue, I don't know, it's, you know, things in Mark are always uh, interconnected, and what made the, uh, I don't know, the, the bleeding woman praiseworthy is that she didn't fear, she believed, she resisted the urge to give in to everything that the culture told her, and she reached out to encounter Jesus. And it was the same thing last week with Lazarus, like, the, you know, the folks in the temple are like, stop bothering this guy, it's too late, your daughter's already dead. And what made, you know, the, the, the Lazarus praiseworthy and, and Jesus praiseworthy is that, you know, uh, in this story, they're not going to give in to the constraints like time or like death. But instead, the point is that Jesus can overcome all those things. And there's this idea over and over and over in the little uh, sections of Mark we've been looking at that are about this kind of like phobos versus belief, fear of flight or belief. Maybe that's the kind of core Mark and choice. And so, when Mark says the crowd is amazed, it's not like they're all like, whoa, this guy is so awesome. They're kind of saying something like, whoa, this guy basically has said stuff that has made me so mad that I'm out of my mind. And that the Mark chooses the word ekplesso there, or the author of Mark chooses the word ekplesso, is, is something like what this guy has said is so, or what we've heard or seen today is so unbelievable that we can't process it. So we just kind of have to, I don't know, run from it. I mean, that's what's, the way I like to think of it, that's what's going on in discussion time for Jesus' sermon that Sunday. People are amazed, I guess, in like some abstract sense, but really they're like awfully mad at Jesus. They're awfully mad at, and they are kind of struck out of their mind by, they want to flee from whatever it was that Jesus said. And here's the thing, like the folks in the audience could not or would not believe what they heard. Like if you read the text of Mark, the gospel doesn't record a particular objection to what Jesus said. Right? They're not like, I can't believe he said X, Y, or Z. They don't even bother to say anything specific about it. The main thing, I think, that these questions will tell us and that the conversation will tell us is that they can't believe that Jesus is the one that said this stuff. Not that they think that what he said was untrue. They don't really have an opinion about it. They just can't believe that it's Jesus that's doing it. And so the folks that are talking at the synagogue that Sunday, I guess they could have, I don't know, sat with it or, or thought about it or processed it, but they don't do that. Their instinct is what? To flee it. And I I don't think it's too much of a jump to say that the gospel picks this word ekplesso because it wants to say that the very same tendency for flight that the bleeding woman felt or that Lazarus may have felt or that the disciples may have given into when Jesus calms the storm, like that phobos, that fear has grabbed this audience and this audience has totally given into it. And so they're not really thinking exactly about what Jesus says. They're just kind of trying to flee from it. I don't know, and like it's one of those things where I've heard folks preach this before and say, wow, just look at how amazing Jesus' words were. You know, like these guys can't even believe it. Jesus was so awesome. But that churchified understanding lends us uh, that sense of amazement here, uh, kind of inappropriate context. Like, look at their questions with just a little bit of, I don't know what uh, self-to-text and text-to-text connections, as they used to say to the kids, but look at the uh, questions with a little bit of context and a little bit of situational awareness, and they take on a much different tenor. So instead of reading through through the rose-colored version of amazement, read them through what these people are kind of saying about Jesus. Where did this man get these things? That's the first question. Now, you don't have to analyze that question very closely to see what's behind it. What's the clear implication behind it? Jesus couldn't have come up with this stuff himself. He had to get this stuff from somewhere. Like the the point of that question is not to say, wow, I'm so amazed at what Jesus has said here. Isn't it incredible that it's Jesus saying it? The point of it is that Jesus must be parroting some insight that he got 
from somewhere else because there's no way that the Jesus that we know or the Jesus that we saw wandering around town as a kid, well, there's no way that Jesus could have said this stuff. And just so we don't have any doubts about that, what's the next question the author of Mark has him asking? What is this wisdom that's been given to him? So, you know, the crowd's amazement here is not quite with the content of what Jesus says. Like I say, it's, it's, it's a lot with who is saying it. And the questions don't get any better. Like, what are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Now, they're not questioning whether he's performing miracles. They're not really questioning, like, the substance of those miracles. They kind of take those things for granted. The, 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 the kind of core of their question is what? What are the miracles? I don't, I don't think they're asking a question that's that different from the one we saw a couple of chapters ago from the scribes. Remember the question the scribes had about Jesus' miracles? They didn't deny that he did them. What did they say? It's unclear what authority he's doing on them. He may be using Satan to bind Satan here was the kind of basis of their argument. So, you know, the, they're not questioning whether or not Jesus is doing miracles. They question whether or not the miracles that Jesus is doing are, I don't know, like uh, for good reasons or praiseworthy or, or of a divine origin. Now, chapter, the, the verse 3 is maybe the most interesting one. So they say, isn't this the carpenter? And the Greek here really means not like carpenter as much as handyman. So we, we really have to read this one closely. And I don't know, like Beth and I love the movie. Uh, what's the Christmas movie with Ryan Reynolds and Anna Faris? And we just, what? Friends. Just Friends. Uh, and it, it's one of our favorite Christmas movies as is. Uh, well, I mean, I guess everybody kind of watches Love Actually around Christmas. And Love Actually has got this great little scene in it where someone says, praise the Lord about something. And they say, oh, uh, he's a Christian, and I think a lot of times when we read this, isn't uh, this a car- the carpenter? We think, uh, I don't know, like people are wondered at Jesus' words. He's good with words and tools. Isn't this a carpenter? And he's a Christian carpenter. But really, they don't intend this juxtaposition to be a compliment. Isn't this the carpenter? Is not a sincere question reflecting a curiosity about Jesus's occupation. They're saying, like, isn't this guy just a handyman as opposed to someone who we think could give a great sermon, like a scribe? Or a rabbi. And like, honestly, quick digression, was Jesus really a carpenter? Like this passage and one in Matthew, which identifies him as the son of a carpenter, is the primary evidence for it. And as you all know, sons would typically take on the trades of their fathers in the ancient Middle East. But when we say Jesus is a carpenter, we're basically taking an ironic question and pretending it describes Jesus. And we're not looking at the meaning behind it. I think the meaning behind it is the crowd is saying something like, shouldn't this guy be a handyman? Like uh, the man of the house, Joseph, that's who he grew up with after all, as opposed to someone who teaches in the synagogue. And really like what they're mad at is that not that it's amazing to hear these things coming from a carpenter. They're thinking Jesus is acting like a rabbi and his father was not a rabbi. So what right does he have to be teaching? But here's where I think it's really important. I guess this would be the uh, four. There's this other clue that really ices the case here. Look at the crowd. Look at how the crowd that's asking the questions about Jesus identifies about him. So Isn't this Mary's son, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? What's missing from this uh, list of things that they'd know about Jesus? What's not mentioned? No dad. dad. His dad's not mentioned at all. So that, 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 that ought to be a big clue to us, that there's no Joseph, that there's no father, and there's this kind of strong implication in these questions that the crowd is mad because Jesus has done something like so neglecting the role of a son and following after the occupation of a father that he doesn't even deserve to be identified with him. They've, they basically said in identifying Jesus through these questions that Jesus has, I don't know, strayed so far from his role as a son 
that it doesn't even make sense to identify him with Joseph anymore. So I don't know, maybe we just identify him with the mother. And they basically said that the choice to speak in the synagogue has rendered Jesus fatherless because he's rejected his father's occupation. He's therefore rejected any recognizable tie with his father. So if you tie that series of takes on those questions together, you get a sense of what amazement means here. The crowd's not amazed in a nice sense. They're not mad about what Jesus has said. To be honest, they didn't even listen to it. They're mad about who Jesus is. They're mad that he is in the temple delivering powerfully wise insights that he had to get from somewhere or something else. And he's off performing miracles with no real sense of whether they're supposed to be good or bad or on what authority is doing them. And after all, isn't this guy supposed to be a carpenter and not a teacher? That's what they're amazed at. Amazement, not good there. The scripture tells us they take offense at him. And the Greek word for that is scandalizo. And it means like our same word, scandalize. But it, that, that word has the sense of like they came to trip on something around Jesus. There was something that they just couldn't get over. That there was something that like stuck in their craw and they couldn't get beyond it. And so like when it says that they're scandalized, it's both something about the character of Jesus, but it's also something about the character of their own context that I think that they can't get over. And I don't know, why does this all matter? Well, to figure that out, we should look at Jesus's response because we know from verse six that he is uh, amazed, uh, also a bad translation of amazed. This is like, uh, Thaumazo is like, he's befuddled by, he's emotionally struck by, he's sad by the fact that they lack faith. And that he sees it as a faith problem confirms this basic thread that we were talking about in the Gospel of Mark. But here's the interesting thing. What does Jesus say? He gets immediately to it. Jesus is so sharp in his diagnoses of things. He says, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his home. Now, the question is, why does Jesus go so directly to honor? Why not just say, I mean, like, what are the stories that we know or we have about why Jesus would be in conflict with the synagogue? We'd say, I don't know, maybe it's about institutions of religion versus the personalization of a religion. We'd say maybe it's about the fact that the Jewish authorities didn't like him. We'd say maybe it's about the fact that no one was quite sure about whether or not you should include Christians as part of the Jews or part of the Gentiles or they're kind of halfway both. Why does Jesus go directly to honor? And then the weird thing is, why is he so cagey about it? Because he doesn't say, like he could very directly, being a prophet is honorable except in your hometown. He says it strictly negatively. He says, being a prophet is not without honor except in one's hometown, in front of one's own family, etc. So the funny thing about what he's saying is it's not an affirmation or negation of honor. It's an insight that he's making about how honor works as a concept. Now, this is where I think this thing gets really interesting. We've talked a bit before about the idea that the culture of the ancient Middle East was an honor culture. And the idea that the whole point And like our culture has some elements of this, but the whole point of that culture was you try and figure out the ways to bring honor to your family and avoid bringing shame to your family. And usually the way you brought shame to your family was what? You like didn't do what your dad did. You demonstrated that you didn't care about the authority of your parents in public. uh, And you might even like (laughs) do things for people in other towns because part of an honor culture was about respecting and putting your town first. So I don't know, like if we or our kids go out into the world and they were to move somewhere else and they were successful doing something other than being, a, I don't know, a professor or a career counselor, like Beth and I would be proud of them. We'd say, that's awesome. You know, we don't feel dishonored by the fact that you picked a different profession than the one we did. We don't feel dishonored by the fact that uh, you picked a town other than Hillsboro. But in an honor culture, all of these things would have implied that there was something 
not only wrong with you, but wrong with your parents because they chose, they didn't really chose, they, they, they were put in a, a bad place to live. They, they, they did an occupation that didn't make a lot of sense. And I don't know, it's all a way of saying that in an honor culture, your identity was not about what you wanted or about finding your passion or any of those things. In an honor culture, your job was to serve as an extension of your family. It's not like in an honor culture, you, I don't know, become an adult and make your own decisions. Like your father would have called the shots until the day he died and to do otherwise would kind of shame the old man. And as a result in an honor culture, especially if you're a son, your job was to take up the trade of your father and do it well and bring honor to your family and to do otherwise would suggest that there is something wrong with your father. And so like when the crowd says, isn't Jesus just the carpenter? They're not saying, hey, this guy's not qualified to say these things. What they're saying is this guy has stepped outside of the bounds of the honor culture. Here's this guy who's supposed to be a handyman. And here he is in the synagogue doing something that he's not supposed to be doing. He is not the son of a rabbi. He is not a person who has the right to or the ability to or even likely has the, I don't know, cultural cachet to make these kinds of realizations. And the thing is, in the idea of an honor culture, honor culture also extended to your hometown. So like, as a kid who grew up in Salt Lake City, I really, really loved my hometown. But when I decided to move somewhere else, no one thought that it was insult to Salt Lake City to do that. But in an honor culture, you were supposed to like so love your hometown and so put your hometown first that if you were to bring any good to any town, you might want to do it at your town first instead of doing it for some other town. And part of the thing that's behind all of this is that Jesus has been bouncing around doing all these miracles over in all these other towns and doing nice things for other people and healing other places and all this stuff. And basically the folks who are steeped in this honor culture would say, not only has he dishonored his father by pretending that he's a rabbi, but he did all these healings and he's done all these miracles and he hasn't done them here. He's chosen to do them in other places. What's wrong with this guy? Like he's doing everything that he basically can to undermine the honor culture. And so that's why Jesus gets directly to the question of honor and diagnosing the problem. He's not just saying, isn't it weird that people don't like me here? He is diagnosing something about the limitations of honor culture as a social form. And he has already kind of said this. Remember when they send his family to go get him and his family is like, we worried that this guy might be out of his mind. And so the disciples send some people to Jesus and they say, hey, Jesus, your family's here. And by the way, they're worried you might be out of your mind. What does Jesus say to them? That's not my family. My family is any person who does or pursues the will or the goals of the kingdom of God. And I don't know what Jesus is saying is something like what's so messed up about honor culture is that the vision of family is not defined by genetics. It's not defined by social habit. Your vision of what is good should not be defined by where you were placed or where you were born or what culture you grew up inside of. And I don't know, you couldn't imagine a more direct hit on the concept of honor culture than that. Jesus is saying that instead of being given an identity by virtue of a social location or growing up in a specific family, your identity should come towards turning, come from turning towards the kingdom of God. And here Jesus says, in the synagogue, dishonoring his family, he's already dishonored his town by healing in other places, and basically he's dishonoring his faith with all kinds of things that would have seemed like blasphemy to people in the synagogue. And I don't know, that's the thing that's at stake here. Like of all the core social fights in the gospel that we think about, is it the Jews versus the non-Jews? Is it institutionalized religion versus the new paradigm for relationship? Is it the Romans versus the colonized Yeah, I mean, it's kind of all those things, but the more I read the Gospel of Mark, the more I think that the basic plot is this, that Jesus is getting us to look at our own habits and own identity, and Jesus wants us to see the way that our own habits and our own identity and our own version of what it means to be honored limits us and makes it difficult for us to pursue the kingdom. 
Like our culture is different. It's not an honor culture, but we pursue our own vision of honor quite relentlessly. And if there's one point that I think this story has to say is that, it, you know, especially for our children, our children and the folks in the congregation will pursue honor in any number of ways. And the point of the kingdom, the point of what Jesus is trying to say here is that don't pursue honor simply because it is something that is given to you by tradition or by your family or by your history or by anything other than God and by the kingdom of God. And instead of pursuing the things that your society or your context tell you that you have to pursue, instead pursue his face, instead pursue his calling, instead pursue the kingdom of God, the expense of the things that you've been told make you valuable or make you honorable for your family or would honor, uh, avoid shame for your family. That's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is basically announcing the idea of the kingdom as being about freedom, isn't he? A vision of freedom that says you don't have to be defined by the expectations or practices or constraints of a locale, that you don't have to be defined by the expectations or practices of your culture. And kids, make sure your parents plug your ears when I say this one, but that you don't have to be constrained by what your parents tell you is right, but instead turn toward Jesus and see Jesus as the one who is more important in the question of what generates social honor for you, who is more important in the question of what generates shame for you, because it is hearing his voice and responding to his calling that is the thing that matters here. That is why I think, I mean, because like, the other thing is like, we have this, we've been taught for whatever reason in our culture to romanticize locality. Like, we buy our produce locally, and isn't that great? And we have a close community where we care about the people around us. And those things are all awesome. I love them. I love living in a town where people are close. But one of the things Jesus is saying in the critique of honor culture is do not be defined by norms that are from the place where you grew up. Be defined instead by encountering me, encountering my face, and seeking the kingdom. And that there is no other thing that could be laid on your heart or that could be made as a practice for you or that could be suggested as a means of achieving honor or avoiding shame. There is no other thing besides his face and besides responding to him that could matter, that could define who you are, the central element in Mark over and over and over, as I've said, is the disciples meeting Jesus on the beach and deciding without extra explanation to just simply pick up and follow him because they'd seen his face. They'd heard his call. And that's why the sending of the 12 follows almost immediately after this uh, vignette about Jesus being rejected in his hometown. Jesus could have said, well, look, I'm going to stay in the synagogue and I'm going to show people exactly how honorable the pursuit that I've, I'm, I'm after it, it, it is. And, you know, why, why don't I demonstrate to them that this is the fulfillment of the kingdom of God? And look, I'm really uh, fulfilling all the things that the scripture has called for. And dang it, you know, why don't you all honor me as a result of it? But Jesus gets that that's a rigged game. So what does he do? He leaves. He goes around teaching from village to village. He calls the 12 to him. And the word for that, proskaleo, means something like to summon towards oneself. And that tells us everything that we need to know. He tells these guys... <laughs> That shame and honor uh, and all the things that we'd think about as being uh, what makes you succeed in that culture and in some ways what makes you succeed in our culture and the, uh, I don't know, the boundaries of your mission are not defined by uh, where you were born. The boundaries of your mission are not defined by who you were born to. The boundaries of your mission are not defined by bringing honor to or avoiding shame for other people. The boundaries of your mission are not defined by something that is a virtue by virtue of where you were placed. What defines you is not where you were placed or where you were located or where you happened to grow up. What defines you is how you were called. 
And the difference is that when, where you're placed, like in an honor culture, you don't ask questions about what's good. You don't ask questions about what's bad. You just react to and maximize the sense of honor, or avoid the sense of shame. And I don't know, like that's what's so weirdly unfree about it. Because when you were called, you were freed from the idea that anything else matters, that there's any fear that you should give into. And instead you seek his face. And that's why he says, look at these instructions. Don't take anything except for a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts, wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And then if the place will not welcome or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. He does not want people to go and put down roots. He does not want them to get to know the whole town. Jesus wants a force that is willing to advance the mission of the kingdom by spreading seeds. And he wants to do it in a way that is not defined by the limits of or is not even trying to test to or fix the limits of honor culture. He wants you to go and plant the seed. And if the town receives it, awesome. And if not, get out of there and shake the dust off your feet. Why? Because his instinct is what is important here is not how well you deliver the message or how well you accommodate to the context. Jesus' instinct, as he has said over and over and over in the gospel of Mark, is to spread the seed and wonder as it grows on its own. You don't have to fertilize an invasive weed. You don't have to tamp down a fire that comes from hiding uh, a lamp underneath uh, a, a sleeping mat. Jesus is saying that the, 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 the thing that's important here is the character of the call and the character of the caller. And when we, like him, put the kingdom first and when we, like him, submit to the Father and when we, like him, work to spread seed and we don't engage with the conditions of honor or shame that animate people's lives, but instead we come to break and not reaffirm that. And when we, like him, plant the seed and watch it grow in wonder and see how the kingdom of God can invade this world and can transform it and can remake it and can bring us a freedom that does not have us bound to honor, does not have us bound to shame, but instead that puts his voice and his face and his person first. Well, then we can be free and then we can be powerful in his name. For those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Amen.